God's people said. I think so. Yeah, I am. Okay. Uh, quick announcement, if you would, join us today. We are after the Sunday morning service here. We're going to have a brief celebration with Doug and Mary and their family, celebrating their 50th wedding anniversary, praise God, for 50 years. And So we're going to have... Yeah, go ahead. So we're going to have some cake out here. We like to eat around here as Baptists. I don't know if you know that. We are Baptists, and Baptists like to eat, so I'm not sure which one you should know more. Uh, but join us, grab some cake, we're going to set some tables up in here quickly, and then have some fellowship, and then jump into our study on the attributes of God. This morning's sermon text comes from the book of Ephesians, and it's just four verses here. I'm going to read them for us. It's in chapter 6. If you have your Bibles, I encourage you to open them there. And it says, "'Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right.'" Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you and that you might live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. This is the word of God. Would you pray with me and for me as we begin this morning? Father, we ask that you would bless us through this text, through the foolishness of preaching. Help me to say your words, not mine. Help our cultural blinders to not turn on our defensiveness, prevent us from seeing the glorious truths that you have for us in your word. Help us to move and not to demand that you move when we see what you say. Help us to adapt to you by the power of your spirit, and we'll give you all the praise and the glory and the honor. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. When it comes to fatherhood, the studies are final. They're in. And here's what the studies show. Might shock us. Children need fathers. Right? Pretty complex truth. Let me give you some examples here on why this is the case. 63% of youth suicides, do you know where they come from? Fatherless homes. 90% of all homeless and runaway children come from fatherless homes. 85% of all children with behavioral disorders come from from fatherless homes, 80% of all rapists come from fatherless homes, 71% of high school dropouts come from fatherless homes. For those who are imprisoned youth, 85% come from fatherless homes. From drastically higher rates of drug abuse to obesity rates to crime rates and even overall mortality rates, the truth is undeniable. Children desperately need their fathers. And yet, despite this shocking statistic on the importance of fatherhood, this is a country that has rejected this hook, line, and sinker. For one out of every four children do not live with a father. And yet, here we are in our culture, and we look around wondering, hey, where'd things go so wrong? I can't figure this out. Maybe it was the schools. Who knows? I think it's pretty obvious where things went wrong, at least largely. And the facts are abundantly clear. Children need fathers. But instead of recognizing this incredibly important truth, our culture has gone even further now to say that fatherhood, as all of human history has understood it from the dawn of time, isn't even that important. Why? 
Because mothers can make good fathers too. Did you know that? Mothers make just as good as fathers as fathers do. It's not that important if a child has one mom, two moms, one dad, two dads. What's important is that there are loving and caring adults there to look after them and care for them. And these lies that are in our culture right now are having devastating consequences. People really believe this stuff. And when I worked in the city, I was in the Twin Cities before I moved up here, and I had coworkers. We would sit and talk about these things. And one of them, I remember him saying, he told me just this straight up. He said that a mom can do everything a dad can do, and a dad can do everything that a mom can do. They're interchangeable. And his point was that mom and dad are basically synonyms for parent. And as a parent, they are a parent, regardless of if they are a mom or a dad. And yet, Dr. David Popino, the fun last name, professor of sociology at Rutgers University and co-director of the National Marriage Project, here's what he had to say about the issue after he researched it. He said, fathers are far more than just second adults in the home. Involved fathers, especially biological fathers, bring positive benefits to their children that no other person can bring. They bring protection and economic support and male role models. They have a parenting style that is significantly different from that of a mother, and the difference is important in the healthy development of the child. He's absolutely right. He's absolutely right. However, he wasn't fully right, and here's why. The difference was actually, is actually even greater than what he found it to be. Much greater. And here's why. For not only are mother and father's parenting style different, not only are they bringing different things to the table, but as Ephesians 6 shows us, they're given different divine responsibility. Very different divine responsibility. All right? And Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 5, or chapters 5 and 6, Paul is giving us God's instructions for how to run the home. He's saying, here's how this runs. Here's what this looks like. And in this passage, he tells us something that is extremely unpopular in our culture right now. You post something like this on Facebook, you're going to get a lot of angry faces or sad faces, and maybe even some snippy comments. All right? And what is that? Paul tells us in these chapters that God created hierarchy in the home. Not a popular idea. It's not going to win friends and influence people anymore today, all right? But it's God's truth, which is to say simply that God created the home to run with an order of authority. It's the same way in the Trinity. Why would it be any different in the home? For our homes are to mirror God himself in his nature. And here's the order, as Paul tells us in these chapters. The husband is to lovingly lead. The wife, trigger warning, is to humbly submit. And the children are to respectfully obey. And not only is this the way God created things to be, this is the way humanity flourishes when this is followed. And what's the reason that we should care at all about doing what Paul is telling us to do in these chapters? Ephesians 5 verse 21 tells us the reason, and the reason is this, out of reverence for Christ. That's the motive. That's the reason as a husband, I love my wife as Christ loved the church, who is willing to die for her. That's the reason my wife submits to me, not because I'm a submittable person, I'm not, but because out of respect and reverence for Christ. Why do my children obey me? Out of reverence for Christ. 
It's all for the glory of God. And it's not because dads are the biggest, the strongest, definitely not the smartest at times, I can attest to that one, or the toughest. It's because God is the biggest, the strongest, the smartest, and the toughest. And that's how God instructed and created things to go in the home. All right? Now, if you don't like that reason, I have a question for you. What else you got? You tell me how it should run. Show me a model that actually works. Give me a motive for how the home should, or give me a model and a motive for people doing home life properly. Think about this for a minute. Have you ever watched non-Christian parenting before and what this looks like? I find it fascinating to watch because they're looking desperately for a reason for the children to obey, right? And it's always one of two things. You ever hear this? Because I said so. I never heard that as a child. I've heard parents say that, so just kidding, Mom. In which, what does the child rightly respond? Okay, who are you and why should I care? Right? Maybe not right away, but by the time they hit teenagers, I can, my mom can attest to that. I'm like, I don't, why do I need to listen to you anymore? You know, I'm, I'm pretty, you know, what's the big deal? What makes you so special? See, now here's the thing. If there is no God, what's the motive for hierarchy in the home? It's power, right? That's all it is. The parents are in charge because they're bigger, stronger, smarter, and so little Johnny has to listen to them. Except for there's a big problem in our culture because little Johnny doesn't stay so little for so long. And eventually little Johnny gets to be big Johnny. And big Johnny, as a teenager, tells parents to go kick rocks because I don't want to listen to what you have to say. All right? Because your power structure for authority in the home was simply might makes right. And so now the new might comes along and the parents are like, I don't like this rule. I liked it before when you were little and I could tell you what to do, but now I don't like this so much. And typically when people run their homes on the might makes right principle, which most of our culture does, by the time they're teens or out of the house, they'll look at you with your young kids and say, oh, just wait till they're teens. Why? Because they're going to be little devils, (laughs) right? And... Typically, it's because homes run on the might makes right principle, and that does not last very long once the might shifts. When a divine, holy, sovereign, just God isn't your grounds for authority, do you know what inevitably ensues? Consequentialist parenting. All right? What is that? I'll tell you what that is. Here's what this is. It's when parents tend to only enforce obedience when the consequences of their children's disobedience are dangerous enough to warrant a reaction. Or the other thing is when you've annoyed me enough, then I'm going to step in. I've had enough of this. All right. And so here's how this typically works. The parents tell little Johnny to go brush his teeth and get ready for bed. And little Johnny says, I don't want to go brush my teeth and get ready for bed. And then what ensues typically with consequentialist parenting is a back and forth hostage negotiation on whether or not the teeth will be brushed. Johnny, you know, if you don't brush your teeth, they could fall out. Do you want your teeth to fall out? You won't be able to eat candy anymore. And Johnny says, I don't care about teeth. I don't even like candy. All right? And they go back and forth on this thing about brushing. And typically, after this has happened several times, either Johnny gets to skip brushing his teeth or he finally relents because he has given up on wanting to hear his parents' perpetual nagging about it. That's consequentialist parenting. That's what it is. But let's change the situation a bit to something with greater consequences and see what a consequentialist parent does, okay? How does this work? Little Johnny decides now, not that he doesn't want to brush his teeth, but he wants to build a campfire in the bedroom. 
And so little Johnny goes and gets gasoline, he gets matches, he gets some, some sticks, and he starts putting it together. And do the parents come in? Now, Johnny, don't you know if you do that, I'm telling you, blow that out right now, I'm counting to 10. They don't do that, right? Why? Because the consequences there are too great. They say, oh, no, 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 Johnny. And they will physically stop Johnny from setting a campfire in Johnny's bedroom. Now, why? Because it's serious stuff. Because they realize Johnny could get hurt. And so this time, little Johnny is physically prevented from continuing on in his rebellious behavior. Now, why as Christians do we not think that way? Because we are so much more concerned with Johnny hurting something or damaging or bringing bad consequences that are way more important than burning the house down. See, as Christians, we ground our authority in God and we reject consequential parenting because we recognize that all rebellion, it doesn't matter if it's tiny and not brushing the teeth or if it's big and starting a campfire in the bedroom, whatever, that, whatever it is, whether great or small, that rebellion, what does that lead to? It leads to hell. Why? Because it is a declaration of war against an all-powerful, all-sovereign, holy, just God. That's what little Johnny's rebellion is in his heart. And we forget that at times, don't we, parents? And so, as parents who are followers of Jesus Christ, we strive to bring our children up to obey their parents. How does Paul tell us? With might makes right? With consequential parent? No, in the Lord. That is the purpose. That is the motive. And why? For this is right. As Paul shows us in Ephesians chapter 6, verses 1 through 4, fathers bear the brunt of this incredibly significant responsibility. He doesn't say fathers and mothers. He doesn't say parents. He says, hey, fathers. Why? Because if there's a problem in my home, right? This doesn't mean wives are completely off the hook, but if there's a problem in my home, if God was going to show up at the door and knock and say, what's going on here? He's not going to go talk to Becky. He's going to say, Zach, come here. What's going on? I gave you this responsibility. How are you managing what I've given you to manage? All right? And so this is incredibly important. And so this Father's Day, we're not going to beat up dads. We're going to encourage dads. I'm a dad. I don't want to go home beat up because I fail just like you do. So we're going to try to encourage us with our Heavenly Father's instructions to fathers as we find in Ephesians chapter 6, verses 1 through 4. And if you're not a father, don't go to sleep because this is going to apply as well. I'm trust, as you're going to see, there's a lot of benefit for you as well in this text for seeing how our great Heavenly Father fathers us. Now, this week I asked my mom if I should preach a longer sermon or a shorter sermon, and she said a shorter sermon. So, because it's Father's Day, it makes sense. I was leaning towards that anyways. And so I'm going to do that by having only two sermon points today. I'm not going to tell you how long each point is, but it's, it's shorter, at least in part there, right? So here's what they are. The Father's message to fathers is to raise our children up to honor and obey. How? With correction and with counsel. It's the two things, the two tools that we use as fathers to raise our children up to honor and obey. Look with me in your Bibles at verse 4. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in discipline and instruction of the Lord. <clears throat> the word the Apostle Paul uses for bring them up or raise them up, it's actually pretty interesting. It's a Greek word that means to nourish. 
what it's talking about. It means to nourish, which for me paints the, gives me that picture or the idea of like watering a plant, right? Like cultivating it, taking care of it, make sure it has enough water, sunlight, and soil. And the point is, just like a plant won't grow if it's not nourished with those vital things, soil, sunlight, and water, so too neither will a child just get raised up on their own. It is not the default state. It takes a whole lot of work, all right? And we are fooling ourselves if we think that our children will naturally grow up into being submissive and respectful adults who love God and their neighbor with all their soul, heart, mind, and strength. It won't happen. Children need the right stuff. And parents, primarily fathers, as Paul tells us here, are given the divine task of providing it for them. And if they do, what is the result? Look at verse 3. It may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Now, this is coming out of the Old Testament, right? He's quoting that, and that applied to the Israelites with the promised land, right? It would, you know, the promise and blessing and cursings. But Paul's taking this and says, no, this applies also to the church. It will go well for you, which means what? It will lead to flourishing. That's what he's saying. So the question is, what's the right stuff? Well, look at the outline, correction and counsel. Now, the word discipline that Paul used here, or what I've put up there as correction, is another very unpopular term in our culture. Make this post. You'll get even more frowny faces, probably. There's no simple way around this here in this text. The word correction, all right, or discipline, it has to do with physical discipline. The rod, as we see over and over in the book of Proverbs, all right, it carries the idea of guidance through physical consequences, as seen all throughout Proverbs and other books in the Bible. Let me show you just a couple of these. Here's what Proverbs 22.15 says, Folly is bound up in the heart of a child, but what? The rod of discipline drives it far from him. Proverbs 29.15 says, The rod and reproof, right? Those are two things, not synonyms there. The rod and reproof gives wisdom, but a child left to himself brings shame to his mother. A while back, I was reading a Christian article about this very topic, all right, on Facebook, uh, and I foolishly started reading the comment section. And then I even more foolishly started engaging in the comment section, in which I promptly deleted it and vowed to never do so again, which I will probably break at some point. But I got interacting with some people who disagreed with this biblical understanding. I tried to do so graciously, but the counter-argument boiled down to this. They said the rod wasn't a rod of physical discipline, but of correction, like a shepherd's staff. And that's how it should be interpreted. And there's, actually, there's two big problems with this. Actually, there's three, but we're only going to look at two of these today. As Proverbs 23 points out, the Lord who guides and disciplines us does it with what? The rod and the staff that comfort us. Those are two different things. All right? And if those are the same thing, that doesn't make any sense. The second problem is that Proverbs 23, 13 through 14, here's what it tells us about discipline, physical discipline. Do not hold back discipline from the child. Although you strike him with the rod, he will not die. You shall strike him with the rod and rescue his soul from Sheol. The verse is basically saying, hey, look, relax. All right? You're loving and careful physical discipline isn't going to hurt your child. In fact, you know what it's going to do? It's going to save their soul from hell, from death. 
That's what it's saying. And why does their soul need rescue from death? Because as cute as they are, all of our children are born rebellious little sinners. Even little Nora, she's a rebellious little sinner, and it's coming out like crazy every single day. Do you realize, though, how serious the sin of disobedience is before a holy God? See, we don't because we look around and we're used to it. We see it all over the place, especially in our culture with children these days. And what does God view disobedience as? He calls it rebellion. And what does 1 Samuel 15, 23 say about said rebellion? It's as the sin of divination. It's as witchcraft is what it says it is. There we go. And apart from the grace of God, what is the consequences for all of this witchcraft, for all of this divination, this rebellion? It's eternal hell. That's what God's word says. That's why Jesus came to die, right? It's that serious of a thing. And I can tell you this, an eternal hell, church, is a whole lot more dangerous than a measly little campfire in your child's bedroom. Way more of a danger. When children rebel against their parents, do you know what they're doing? They are actually rebelling against the very God of the universe. We thought of it that way before. That's what they're doing. Your authority is not in and of yourself for being bigger, better, stronger, smarter. Your authority is on loan from God. And so what they are doing is they are going against God himself when they go against you. And so if we do not continually force them to face the rebellious sin nature that is within their hearts, we show not love but hate. And that's what Proverbs 13, 24 says, whoever spares the rod hates his son, but he who loves him is diligent to, and there's our word again, discipline him. If you only discipline your child for the big stuff, like campfires in the bedroom, then you are raising your child up to be a rebellious God-hater. That's what the scriptures tell us. And my job is not to tell you things that itch your ears and make you smile. It's to tell you what God's word says. And so I'm going to try to graciously and kindly do so this morning. That's what God's word tells us. We are raising them up to be rebellious God-haters. How so? Because the older your children, our children, get, the better and better they get at masking their rebellion. See, a lot of times, if you have a parent who does the consequentialist parenting, does the, you know, all that kind of, not the biblical stuff, what happens is Johnny's a little terror until Johnny's, you know, seven, eight, nine, then he gets better at it, or so they think. But what Johnny's actually doing is he's gotten smarter about masking his rebellion, all right? He's gotten better at manipulating, getting the things that he wants. And here's, the, here's a good example of this. My son Ian is two years old, two and a half, and this dude cannot hide a bad attitude if his life depended on it. And some of you know what I'm talking about. You see this, right? Like, he's terrible at hiding it. When he's got a bad attitude, it's on his face, it's in his tone, his lip goes way out all crazy, like it's all distorted and stuff, and he's got this ridiculous power-walking arm swing thing that I can't even emulate when he, that just, like, results in him falling on the ground. It's tantrum is what it is, right? And it's so blatantly obvious because he can't hide it at all. He's terrible at it, all right? And as parents, if we ignore this at a young age, and try to distract them from their rebellion when bring along shinier objects and say, hey, no, 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 you don't want to rebel. You want this. Take this. This will make you happy. Right? If that's our approach to parenting, do you know what inevitably happens? He learns to better mask 
is rebellion, right? I mean, how often do you see an adult storm across the room when they are back in line there and the last cupcake gets taken and they storm across the room, arms swinging, lip out, fall on the ground and just start yelling? They don't. Usually what happens instead is you see more subtle attitude issues. Maybe there's a passive-aggressive comment. Anybody ever heard any of those? You're all Minnesotans. Say yes. Okay. That happens, right? Like, oh, I guess somebody didn't plan enough food today. You know, that kind of a thing, right? We throw tantrums in much more intelligent, less embarrassing ways. Look, if we think our children are going to just naturally grow up and out of their rebellious ways into submissive, respectful adults who love God and neighbor as themselves, we are seriously deluding ourselves. It's not just going to happen. The truth is, if a child doesn't obey when they are four, why on earth would we think that they would suddenly obey when they're 14? They're not. They're going to get smarter about it. They won't. Because as we know with God, and this is why this is so important, outward obedience without inward heart change isn't commendable, it's condemnable. Right? They may, at 14, realize, you know what, I'm tired of being grounded all the time. My son Ian, he's two and a half. Like, he's still, like, it's like, bro, you are going to get in trouble for this. Like, this just happened three times this morning. What are you doing? When he's 13, though, 14, he realizes, this isn't worth the consequences, so I'm going to go along with it, not because I respect my parents, and, and by respecting them, I'm respecting God. I'm going to go along with it because I don't want to deal with the consequences, though in my heart, I think they're foolish, and their heart, in my heart, I'm rebelling. That's what happens here. And as we just said, outward obedience without inward heart change isn't commendable, it's condemnable before God. This is why this is so incredibly important. The Bible is crystal clear here. Ignore Dr. Phil, ignore Oprah, ignore all of the special gurus out there. It's, the Bible's clear. Listen to God. If we do not require obedience from our children, we are actively leading their souls to the gates of hell. Rebellion is the sin of witchcraft. It is opposed to a holy God. And so this is why, as Christian parents, we take every single act of rebellion with the utmost seriousness. At least we strive to. Because even the smallest act of it is large enough to damn their souls to hell for all of eternity. The number one most important thing that parents need to teach their children at a young age is this. There is such a thing as authority, and you aren't it. It's pretty simple. It's the word no, right? Why? Because I want a peaceful house. I want a relaxing evening, though I like those things. But is that the motive? No. It's because... It's not because it's my rules, my house, my rules. It's because it's God's house, and he is a holy God who will judge the world for not following his rules. The Bible is chock full of so many examples of this. I think of Eli's sons, Hophni and Phinehas, who God judged and killed early for their sin. Why? Because as the text tells us, Eli refused to discipline them. And then we have the example of King David with two of his sons, whom he refused to discipline. First, there was Amnon, who raped his half-sister Tamar, in which the text says David was quite upset, but didn't do anything about it. And then you have his other son, 
Adonijah, who in 1 Kings 1.6 tells us how David says this, never at any time displeased him by asking, why have you done thus and so? He never corrected him. And as we see with David, this refusal to deal with the rebellious nature that was in his children's hearts, it led to death and destruction. It had terrible ramifications in his family, which is a picture for us, church, of what the rebellion in our children's hearts leads to eternally. Discipline is a vitally essential element in the home, and without it, we harm our children in ways we could have never imagined. What is the criteria given for this verse, for our discipline? Look at verse 3. Verse 4, sorry. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. So how are we to do this discipline thing? Look at the verse. What does it say? Without provoking. We are not to provoke our children to anger. And before we move on here, I need to make a few things clear here that are vitally important. Biblical discipline, first off, only disciplines for sin, not for childness, childishness. Right? That's a big, important distinction. If you discipline for childish shenanigans, or because they just bug you sometimes with their childishness, not only is that parental abuse, but that will provoke them to anger. All right? If your four-year-old is playing with the vacuum hose, like it's a snake or something, and make-believe it and pretend, you come along and yell at him and go to your room, you don't touch that, but you've never told him not to touch the vacuum hose before, you're provoking them to anger, right? They're just being a child. They don't know. And another thing, don't make pointless, arbitrary rules. Let them play with the vacuum hose. Like, who cares? Like, it's not, there's no reason not to, you know what I mean? Like, don't make pointless, arbitrary rules that will provoke them to anger, Paul says. And another thing, don't punish your children for mistakes, all right? If they trip and spill their milk because they're little undeveloped motor skills, we do not discipline for them for that, right? They make mistakes. We make mistakes. If they trip and fall, that's not sin. We smile and we say, oh, you know what? Try to be careful, honey, you know, and we help them clean it up. Unless, though... They were standing on the kitchen table trying to balance their milk cup on their head, and we've told them before seven times not to do so, and they rebelliously did so anyways and spilled the milk. Then it's rebellion. Then it's disobedience, right? Those are the, that's the difference there. A lot of parents forget here, though, that training our children is vastly different than training an animal. There's a reason they don't sell shock collars for children, all right? <laughs> Some of you get that look off your face. You're not doing that, all right? For example, with a dog, it's all about cause and effect. You don't sit down to your dog and you're like, now listen, Rover, I have to explain something to you. If you go in the garden, you know, we don't do that. We're just like, no, you know, like that's how it works with dogs. That's like, not how it work with, works with kids, though. With kids, though, children are very different. We do not discipline them for not knowing what we haven't told them. However, we need to be wise here, parents, because children understand things a whole lot faster and sooner than our culture gives them credit for. I'm pretty sure Nora knows how to unlock my phone, and she's like a year and a half years old, <laughs> all right? And so the point there is this. If they can understand how to unlock your smartphone and how to pull up baby shark, they can understand the word no. They can, right? No is not that complicated. 
it's a pretty straightforward thing. They may not be able to understand all the reasons for no, but they can understand no means no. All right? And so we need to be careful here in a culture that is more than willing to provide us with all sorts of reasons why our children can't obey, why they don't obey, justifications for it. Well, you just don't understand this, 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 this. Insert the reasons. When the Bible doesn't give us outs for these reasons, it simply tells us, obey your parents and the Lord, for this is right. The Bible is clear here. Once our children understand the word meaning of no, it is our job as parents to enforce that, not because of ourselves, but because behind our authority stands the authority of a holy God. And so if a child, here's here's a good criteria for understanding this. If a child hears the command, if they understand the command, but then they refuse to obey the command, they are engaged in active rebellion of the heart, which means we as parents must consistently and always address it. It must be dealt with. And if that addressing of it ends with their rebellious heart continuing on in their rebellion, we have acted how David did towards his children. If we've distracted them with a shiny candy cane or something and said, no, don't punch your sister, eat this candy cane instead, we've done as what David did with his children. As our children's spiritual guardians, when we ignore their rebellion, we are risking their very souls. And as Satan uses the rebellion to create a stronghold in their hearts from an early age that despises authority, rejects submission, and then what happens when later it comes along and they say, you know what, you've got a problem with God, your heavenly father. You've sinned against him. He's your authority. You need to submit to him. They say, yeah, right. I'm the authority. I've been doing this authority thing my whole life. My parents aren't in charge. I'm the boss. We don't prepare their hearts for the gospel. When we do this, our children then need to be brought to see that their anger towards parental authority, as we said before, is really at its heart anger towards God's authority. And so as parents, our goal isn't simply to raise them up, to love themselves more, to improve their self-esteem, to follow their dreams. It's to do one thing, teach them about the holiness of God, to show them that they have fallen desperately short of the divine holy standard, and to remind them that trying to be better isn't going to cut it. It's not enough. For apart from the grace of God, they are totally helpless sinners who will not not stand on the day of judgment. They will fall. Biblical discipline, secondly, not only disciplines, biblical discipline only disciplines for sin, not childishness, but secondly, biblical discipline is not Punishment. This is huge. When we talk about physical discipline, we aren't talking about punishment. For discipline and punishment are actually, in the Bible, two very, very different things. And so we never discipline with vengeance in our hearts, parents. We don't do so. Not with anger, malice, or resentment, but with loving compassion. We don't deal with our children harshly. We don't make unreasonable demands. We do not abuse our authority, but we practice servant leadership with them. As we said before, we do not make rules for the house without good reasons for them. We do not nag our children. We do not badger our children. We do not condemn them. We don't emotionally manipulate them by withdrawing from them 
or neglecting them when they've disappointed us. Sometimes parents do that. They punish their children by saying, I'm not talking to you. You go, I don't want to deal with you, right? That's not how we parent. That's not how, and why? That's not how God parents us. When we go to God and confess our sins, he is what? Faithful and just to forgive us of our sins. And so as parents, when my daughter or sons, when they sin and they've done something wrong and there's been the discipline process, I don't say, now I need an hour to cool down. No, I forgive and it's done and we pray together and rejoice in the forgiveness. And you know what the picture of that looks like? Think of the prodigal son returning home. Did the father yeah, you can come, but you're sitting at the end of the table by yourself. No. He ran out and put his arms around him and embraced him. We do not humiliate our children, insult them, nag them, or discipline them publicly. And instead, we deal with them gently but firmly. We deal with them patiently, kindly, and graciously, just as our Heavenly Father deals with us. 1 Corinthians 11:32 says this, but when we are judged by the world, sorry, but when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined. Why? So that we may not be condemned along with the world. Not as punishment, as correction, as reproof to protect our children. Yes, our children desperately need a firm and loving hand that forces them to see the face to see and face the rebellion that lies within their hearts. But they need much, much more than that, church. They need a father who will not simply discipline them, but will counsel them by pointing them to the only Savior who can ultimately deal with their rebellious heart, which leads us to our second point. How do we raise our children up to honor and obey? Well, as we just saw with correction, even though it's unpopular, it's right. God made it this way and has instructed us to. Secondly, with counsel. The second word in verse 4 is the word instruction, or better translated, counsel, which tells us, church, that John Wayne fathering isn't going to cut it. Right? You know what I mean? Some of you know who John Wayne was. It was kind of this rough and gruff, like, rub some dirt in it, sissy. You know, that kind of approach. Right? That's, that's not biblical parenting. All right? It's not all wrath. It's, it's not just discipline. It's bold. It's counsel. It's care. All right? And so what we must not do is ignore this. We must counsel them. How? With the gospel, and especially not with moralism. That's a big difference, right? With the first part, with correction, we're holding up the moral standard, and we are holding it and saying, you fall short to this, and you know what? I'm holding you to this, because why? Because God's holding you to this. But with this next part, with counsel, all right? We are not simply after moralistic outward change. We are after heart change. We are, try- we are not simply trying to change their behavior because obedience in and of itself is not commendable before God. It's condemnable if it's not accompanied with heart change. We are not simply after an obedient child who is respectful, controllable, socially acceptable, polite, respectful, or moral, or get straight A's. That's not what we're simply after. Those are good things. But in and of themselves, those are not good things. And why not? Because we are not after behavior modification. That's not the goal. It's just to get our children's behavior to change. Yeah, I would like that, but only if it's accompanied with heart change. 
because we are after spiritual heart change. And how does that come about? Only through the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's it. Not through obedience, not through holding them to the law, not through training, right? It comes through the gospel. And so as parents, what do we need to do then? We need to live that gospel out in front of them in every way, shape, and form and opportunity that is provided to us. And so when my child sees me lose my control, and I'll confess here, sometimes I do get impatient with my kids, all right? It's happened many times. Parents, yeah, fathers, you know, you do it too. But when I do that, I don't just brush it under the rug and just be like, ah, dad's tired. You know, it's been a long day, go to your room. No, I come along, I get, you get down on your knee, father, and you go to them and you confess your sin to them and God and ask them for forgiveness. You show them the same humility you're calling them to, right? And why? Because you want your children to know that daddy is a sinner just like them. And the difference is, though, he's a sinner saved by the grace of Jesus. And that is why we all need the rebellion of our heart fixed. That is where and how we get the rebellion of our heart fixed. When my two-year-old sins and lies to me for the fourth time that day, I don't use my words to try to manipulate him into obedience. I ask him this question. Son, why do you think it is you keep lying? In which they'll often say, I don't know. And what an opportunity to tell them why they keep lying. Because you are a depraved, rebellious sinner whose heart is at war against the Holy God. And so what do you think you need? I don't know. You need Jesus. He's the only one who can fix that. You see how discipline as a parent is a springboard into the gospel every time if we do it rightly? It is. And so when we ignore that, we are missing so many opportunities to point our children to the gospel, the saving gospel of Jesus Christ. Parents and especially fathers, I want to talk to you for a second, dads. Do you realize you are the prime evangelist in your child's life? It's not the pastor. It's not youth pastors. It's not Sunday school teachers. It's fathers. It is fathers who are the prime evangelist. And so fathers, it is first most your job, and it is a job of incredibly enormous significance. Our fatherhood is meant to display on earth the nature of our heavenly father who is unseen. That's what we model it after. That's what we're aiming for. We do it imperfectly, but that's what we're after. And so we must take our role as fathers with the utmost seriousness. Not only seeking to raise our children in the discipline and in the instruction of the Lord, but first most to ensure that we ourselves are living according to that same discipline and instruction that we are regularly pointing them to. And if we don't, we're hypocrites. Men, you cannot lead your children down the road towards Christ any further than you've already gone. That's, not, that's just not how it works in general. Okay, And so fathers, we must be the pioneers of our family's faith. Because God has given us this important, incredible responsibility, and we will stand before him one day and give an account. We will. Which means that we must live out our Christianity in front of our children every day of the week, not simply on Sunday mornings. Because if we do, our children are going to see right through that. 
and they're going to come to despise it. If they see me treating Becky as many marriages in this world treat each other, what is that going to do to the power of the gospel? What is the purpose of marriage, church? What is the purpose? It's to reflect the love of Christ in the church. And so as a parent, if I want to love my children with the most deepest love I can, I love Becky first. She gets the priority. I don't always practice this, but I had a a counselor who, in seminary, he had a good point. He said, when I get home, the kids run to the door, dad, 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 oh, yeah, where's mom? Goes and sees mom, greets mom, gives her a hug and kiss, asks her how her day was. Then when he's done, he says, all right, kids, what's up? Why did he do that? Because he was trying to love his children the best way he could, which was to love his spouse, which was the picture of Jesus the Savior right, and his love for the bride, which is the church. We must live out our Christianity in front of our children every day of the week, 24 hours a day, to the best of our ability through the grace and the power of God. And so by the grace of God, we must strive to model the love of God in all we do and say for the glory of God and for the sake of our children. Seem like a tall order? Yes, said the gentleman in the room. Indeed it is. And though we have failed and will fail, we must still nevertheless move forward recognizing the incredible and important privilege that we have been given to be the prime vessels to introduce our children to our perfect Heavenly Father. And yeah, we're going to be inconsistent, but we must strive for consistency. We must be continually going to war with our sin in ways that our children can recognize, right? And we must live consistently. Think about this. If I drive my children around all week long to school, to work, to plays, to sports and concerts, but then the meeting of God's people comes around and I say, you know, we're tired. We've had a busy week. My, I'm not trying to pound you with legalism here. I'm just trying to be practical. Is that teaching your children something? It is. It's teaching them something about the worth of God in comparison to all those other things. And so we got to think carefully about these things, church, right? We are prone to wander. We are incredibly blinded to our idolatrous passions. And so we need to pioneer the way for our children with the power of grace and the gospel as we endeavor to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, with all of our soul, with all of our mind and our strength and our neighbor as ourselves. And though we have failed and will fail, we must recognize that we serve a father who does not fail. Some of you have had horrible fathers. Fathers that do not reflect the Heavenly Father at all. But, praise God, you have a Heavenly Father who is a perfect Father, who loved you so much that what did He do? He took His Son, His one and only Son, and sent Him to die upon a cross. Not just any old death, but a horrible death upon a cross for you, so that you could become the adopted sons and daughters of the living God. And out of that grace that we've received, we now have a commission, as parents and especially as fathers, to point these children to that Father who has such great, deep love for us. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this text. Lord, I just pray that this would be an encouragement to your people. For we know that your correction and your rebukes never beat us up simply to leave us in our brokenness, but to 
Point us to the healing that comes through the power of the gospel and the grace that you freely give to all those by faith. Lord, we live in a culture that hates authority. We live in a culture that matches the description of the end times where children will not be obedient to parents. And so we are fighting an uphill battle in the rain, in mud. But we know that through the power of the gospel, we can make it. So Lord, we ask that you would give us patience, give us vigilance, determination, and empower us to do the impossible. Not a single one of us even through the most best parenting us sinners can muster up, can save the souls of our children. But nevertheless, you have called us to point their little hearts towards the Savior. And for whatever reason, you have promised to bless that endeavor as we plant the seeds that by your grace so often flourish and blossom into saving faith. So Lord, help us to love you more and so that we can love our children more. Help us to love you because you are worthy of being loved. And Father, help us to be, have homes in this church that reflect the perfect love that you have for your son, for all of your adopted children by grace. We pray these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen.